sometimes happens, uh, happened to the Apostle Paul that when he would email the secretary of the church in Corinth, uh, a mistake would somehow be made and the text in the bulletin would not be uh, correctly reported. It is not Acts 19, 1 through 19, but Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. Wonderful to be with you again. We have before us this morning one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. It is important because the conversion of the Apostle Paul was such a momentous event in the history of the Christian church, indeed, in the history of the world. Saul, his Jewish name, or Paul, his Roman name, by which he came to be known as a Christian, was to become the champion of Gentile inclusion in the church, the chief architect of the spread of the gospel westward from the Holy Land, and was eventually to write almost half of the books of the New Testament. And in those 13 letters was to expound the Christian faith as no other apostle did or could have done. From this point onward in Luke's book of Acts, the personal history of the apostle Paul is his chief occupation. Paul was not simply one of the greatest early Christians. He was one of the few most influential human beings ever to grace this world. We cannot conceive of the Christian faith without the life, the ministry, and the writings of the Apostle Paul. And yet, at one point, this man had been the most implacable and dangerous enemy of the fledgling Christian church. What is more, Acts 9 is the account of the conversion of a sinner. And there can be no doubt that the conversion of the Apostle Paul serves in the New Testament as the paradigmatic conversion of a sinner. That is, if you want to know what conversion is, Acts chapter 9 is the chapter for you. Paul will be the example par excellence of a Christian in the New Testament. We know more about him than we know about anyone else in that first generation, and we learn from his letters what the Christian life is to be. Therefore, his conversion becomes the great example of that revolution that creates a Christian. Christ Jesus is our example in many ways, but he cannot be our example in every way. He cannot show us how a person repents of sin or overcomes sin in his or her life because he never sinned. Nor can he show us how a man or woman is converted to God in the middle of life since he was a believer from his mother's womb. We need another example for such things, and in the New Testament, Paul is preeminently that example. Before he was a Christian, Paul was a serious man, a thinking man, a deeply devout Jewish man. He practiced his faith and was admired for it. What Paul did not know was that salvation was beyond the wit, the wisdom, and the effort of any mere human being. He did not know that salvation required the, the intervention of God, the incarnation, the suffering and death, and the resurrection of the Son of God, or the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. 
Underscoring the importance of Paul's personal history, Luke will repeat this story that we are about to read with additional interesting detail twice more in Acts, and then Paul himself once again in an autobiographical aside in his letter to the Romans. In fact, more space is devoted to the account, the narrative of Paul's conversion than to any other event in the New Testament except the crucifixion of the Lord. In fact, if you can believe it, more space is devoted to the narrative of Paul's conversion than to the narrative of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, and in Luke in particular, where space is at a premium, an event that is recorded at length three separate times is obviously an event of immense importance. Luke was anxious that as the Book of Common Prayer has it, we should have Paul's wonderful conversion in remembrance. But we're still not done. The conversion of Paul, the dramatic and radical transformation in his life, is second in importance only to the resurrection of the Lord as evidence of the historicity of our faith and the truthfulness of the Bible's claim to be nothing less than the revelation of God. In a day of increasing hostility to our faith, it is vital that you know, that you be convinced of the truthfulness of the Bible's claims for itself and for our faith. You have to know that all of this is true, that every day, all day long, in your conversations with everyone, you live in the conviction that the gospel is history as it actually happened. Had you been there, you would have seen and you would have heard the very things that are recorded for us in this narrative. You need this encouragement. You need to be reminded regularly why the Christian faith will never disappear no matter how, it, how much it is disliked in those dying cultures that have repudiated its theology and its ethics. So now, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Children, this chapter has sometimes been entitled, How Paul Lost His Bad Breath. Paul will later say that he had been in a kind of rage against the Christians. In Acts 26, he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, there were more martyrs than simply Stephen whose martyrdom is the only one we have recorded for us in the book of Acts. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Paul means that he tried to make them deny Christ. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So at this point, Paul had a reputation. In modern terms, we might say that he was the chief, uh, chief agent of the Gestapo or the KGB and his methods were cruel and harsh. 
went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul went to Damascus, a city some 150 miles north of Jerusalem, a city with a large Jewish population to, to secure the extradition of Christians, probably only the more prominent ones, who had escaped to Damascus from Jerusalem when the persecution had intensified there, the persecution we read of in chapters 6 and 7. The high priest was the head of the Jewish state so far as its internal affairs were concerned, and the Romans generally let them manage their own affairs as a way of dampening the spirit of rebellion. As he went on his, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul will later say that the men saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one speaking to him. That's chapter 22. The idea seems to be that they heard a sound but they couldn't distinguish the words. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Straight Street is still a main thoroughfare in the city of Damascus. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. So far as Ananias knew, by going to Saul, he would be handing himself over to the secret police. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my, of my name. Paul had made many others suffer. Now he would suffer himself for the same Christ, the same message, the same gospel. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the first words Saul ever heard addressed to him by a Christian were these, Brother Saul, a kind welcome. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Of Ananias we hear nothing more, but what an honored place in the history of the kingdom of God belongs to that man. Most of us will never be of any great note in the kingdom of God, but we may be the instrument of God's grace in the life of someone who shall be as Ananias was. Now our Heavenly Father, by the power that you have given us, the power of our imagination, cast us back to these extraordinary events before and after the Apostle Paul became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and a champion of the gospel and a standard bearer of the Christians. And make us, O oh God, again to thrill in the power, the grace, and the love of God. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the 18th century, there was a prominent nobleman for long years, a member of parliament for some time, the chancellor of the exchequer, the equivalent of our secretary of the treasury, one Baron George Littleton. As a young man, Littleton studied at Oxford, breathing the heady air of European rationalism in the 17th or the 18th century. He and a friend, a fellow student by the name of Gilbert West agreed to research in their spare time some of the key pillars of the Christian faith. Oxford students had lots of spare time in those days with the aim of proving the Christian faith untrue, no longer a satisfying philosophy of life for an educated man. West set out to demonstrate that Jesus never actually rose from the dead. Littleton devoted his time to proving that the conversion of the Apostle Paul was a Christian myth. They agreed to do painstaking research, to read everything of importance bearing on these questions, and gave themselves a year to establish their respective arguments. In West and Littleton's cases, as they proceeded in their investigations, as they subjected the evidence to skeptical review, instead of growing more confident in their doubts, they both eventually concluded that the biblical record was irrefutable, that it could not be explained in some other way, that the events had to have happened as they are reported to have happened in the New Testament, and that therefore Christianity is true. Accordingly, both men became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, devout and serious Christians. In Baron Littleton's case, his argument was published in the form of a letter to his friend George Gilbert West, bearing the title Observations on the Conversion and Apostleship of St. Paul, a small book that still withstands serious scrutiny. In it, he argued that he had become so convinced of the reliability of the New Testament's account of Paul's conversion that aside from other arguments, many other arguments that could be advanced for the truth of the Christian faith, the conversion of Paul and its aftermath were, as he put it, a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. As he proceeded in his argument, he 
considered in turn the possible alternatives, that Paul was an imposter, a man telling a tale, that his conversion was the result of some delusion, or that he had been somehow, in the terms we use nowadays, brainwashed. And one by one, he dispensed with these counter-explanations as simply unbelievable, actually as more preposterous than unbelievable. Such explanations are still offered by some serious scholars. Some have suggested that the account we have in Acts chapter 9 was the result of an epileptic seizure, that the account was in fact the result of a psychological break that resulted from unresolved feelings of guilt or from perhaps a hallucination. But as Littleton showed already in the 18th century, and scholars have demonstrated again in the 20th and the 21st, all these explanations have about them an air, more than a whiff of desperation. There's no evidence for any of them, never has been. The arguments for some other explanation of what we read in Acts 9 are in fact so weak that mostly nowadays even skeptical scholars do not offer them. But unwilling to believe that such a thing actually happened, they simply throw up their hands and proceed without explanation to the account of the conversion of Paul. But no one should take that form of cheap skepticism seriously because there is so much evidence to confirm the truth of what we have just read. First and foremost, this is Paul's own account, his own explanation of the dramatic and radical change that occurred in his life. An enemy of the Christian faith and of the Christians themselves, he nevertheless became their standard bearer for no other reason but that he had himself encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. It was an event to which Paul would make reference many times and in many ways in his letters. He would several times make the claim that no matter that he had not been one of the Lord's disciples during the days of his ministry, he still met the qualifications of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ because he was an eyewitness of the Lord's resurrection. In 1 Corinthians, he claimed that he had seen Jesus our Lord, and that Jesus had last of all appeared to me also. He claimed that he had received his commission as an apostle, not from men, but from Christ himself, and that he had received his message, not from other men, as if he had been taught by other apostles or by other Christians, but I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Saul had been persecuting the Christians on the understanding that Jesus was a dangerous imposter and blasphemer, leaving people astray, a man, a mere man claiming to be God. In his letters, he made it very clear that he understood from his own experience why Jews were preconditioned to reject Jesus as the Messiah, as he himself had done at first and done with a vengeance. But in a moment, his entire understanding of Jesus had been transformed. Second, 
One can discount Paul's own words and refuse to believe his own explanation of what happened to him and why his life was so violently turned upside down. Indeed, if anyone is determined not to believe what one reads in the New Testament, he or she must refuse to credit Paul's own explanation of his changed life. But what people cannot do is discount the Apostle Paul himself. Earlier in Acts, we read of Paul's involvement in the death of Stephen and his effort to destroy the fledgling Christian movement in Jerusalem. If this man was anything, he was persistent. He was committed to the destruction of the church. The description we have here of Saul in 1 and 2 and then again in verse 13 leaves it beyond dispute that months later, Saul was the same man of the same mind. The very idea that he would become a follower and champion of Jesus Christ would have seemed to him both ridiculous and repugnant. Not only does Paul again and again and to his own discredit admit how horribly he mistreated Christians before his own conversion, not only does he explain in some detail precisely what he had thought about God, about man, about salvation in his days as a loyal Pharisee, but he spent his life subsequently virtually exhausting himself, advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ, planting the Christian flag all over the Mediterranean world, finally giving his life in loyalty to the commission he had received to preach Jesus as the savior of sinners to the Gentiles. The fact is, like it or not, no serious biblical scholar denies any of this. The life and ministry of the Apostle Paul is a fact of first century history, if there is any such fact. So at some point, for some reason, there was a dramatic, sudden, powerful revolution in this man's thinking and living in the purpose for which he lived. Paul himself explained how that revolution came to be and gives that explanation repeatedly. For what reason should we, should anyone doubt this man's own explanation, remarkable though it be? Remember, we're not talking about some religious fanatics with lots of strange ideas, a gullible rube, a bumpkin taken in by stories of gods and angels and the like. We're talking about one of, if not the greatest intellect of the Greco-Roman world in the first century. We're talking about one of the most educated men of his day, a man whose writings demonstrate his complete acquaintance with the most sophisticated literature and philosophy of his world, both Greek and Roman and Jewish. We're talking about a man who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a revered Jewish rabbi held in high honor among all the people of that time, but at the same time a man who could speak to the philosophers in Athens and demonstrate his thorough acquaintance with the thinking of both, both of the primary schools of Greco-Roman philosophy, Stoicism, and Epicureanism. For a long time, this man hadn't believed a thing the Christians were saying. As did many Jews, he mocked the very idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. We're talking about a man whose soaring thought and impressive prose literally changed the world. 
It would not be too much to claim that the Apostle Paul is one of the very few most influential men in the history of mankind. Second, perhaps, only to the Lord Christ himself. Think of this man, a brilliant intellect, a writer of literary masterpieces, a man whose words have been memorized by millions of human beings throughout the ages, who did it all in the service of a large and compassionate heart, a man painfully honest about his moral failures, both past and present, passionate in his gratitude for what God had done for him and given to him in spite of all that he had been and done, a man who could have lived a life of comfort and celebrity but willingly gave himself to a life of hardship for more than 30 years, having spent himself in the service of Christ and his gospel, a man who eventually died for the sake of his confidence in the message that he proclaimed, a man universally acknowledged as Christianity's greatest teacher and the gospel's greatest champion, it takes more than chutzpah. It takes almost inconceivable credulity to regard that man's life as the result of a hallucination, a mental break, or a pious fraud. For 2,000 years now, millions upon millions and hundreds of millions of people have carefully read this man's writings and have had their, their lives changed for them universally for the better. Like it or not, the best human life in this world has for nearly 2,000 years been that human life profoundly influenced by the life, the thought, and the writing of the Apostle Paul. Whatever else anyone may say, he was most assuredly neither mentally unbalanced nor a charlatan. Indeed, it takes more than gall, that more gall than most unbelievers are able to muster to dismiss Paul as a man who didn't know the difference between a hallucination and reality, or who didn't care if the story he was spreading was a fable. Most unbelieving scholars do what the generality of unbelievers do. They simply don't think about this. They refuse to face the challenge of this history. They ignore how powerful the witness of this history actually is. I've read their books, and they are exercises in avoiding the obvious. But consider this. There isn't a shred of evidence that any of the other apostles, the, earlier, the earliest guardians of the Christian faith, took Paul as anything other than the man he himself claimed to be, an enemy of the gospel whom the Lord Jesus Christ made into its champion by a direct encounter with him on the Damascus Road. Surely if Paul were an imposter for any reason, however innocent, such as mental illness, that fact would have been reason enough to dismiss him. Natural jealousy would have been sufficient to ruin his reputation for a former enemy of the church who had nothing to do with the Lord's own ministry or with the establishment of the church after Pentecost. For that man to claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, worthy to stand alongside the twelve, would have been considered nothing short of outrageous. 
by those men, unless, of course, they knew that everything that he said about the transformation of his life and the appearance of Christ to him was true. Does Ananias strike you as a man who would have lied about what happened that day in Damascus? Is there any resemblance, any at all, in content or in presentation between this narrative in Acts chapter 9 and a religious myth? Almost all of the New Testament history is rested on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And this testimony, chief among them. What I want all of you to see this morning is that the life of the Apostle Paul is in itself irrefutable evidence of the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that the account of salvation from sin and death that we are given in the New Testament is nothing less than the truth of God, and that what we read in Paul's 13 letters is truth with a capital T, what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. His great exposition of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God his luminously clear explanation of the Lord's death on the cross as a sacrifice to pay the debt of our sins. It was Paul, after all, who wrote, God forbid that I should boast save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. His summons to believe in Jesus that we may obtain the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. His searching description of what it means to live as a Christian. Everything, all of this, rests absolutely on Paul's own experience, his personal history. Paul was a teacher who never, never patronized his audience. He wrote to the influential and the powerful. He wrote to slaves. And he gave them all hard, deep, searching truth. He had finally come to know what human beings are in their sin before God and what they needed. It is simply inconceivable that if Paul was not transformed in the experience of which we read in Acts chapter 9, that any of this could have come to pass. That, brothers and sisters, is what they call evidence. The fact is, this was the last of the Lord's post-resurrection appearances. Paul himself will place it on the same level as the Lord's appearance to Peter and James and to the 11 gathered in the upper room on that first Easter Sunday, as well as his appearance to the more than 500 disciples in Galilee some days later. For the last time, the Lord Jesus left that place wherever it is in the vast reaches of our universe where he now sits on his throne ruling over all things to meet this one man and to summon him to his life's work. And surely it is because Paul was to become so great a man and to perform so crucial a work, so essential to the salvation of the world that Christ appeared to Paul himself and overpowered him as he did on the road to Damascus. You and I will not be granted a sight of Jesus in his glory until the second coming. But we know that Christ is coming again to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him in some large part because of the life, the experience, and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. 
Who can doubt that among the authors of the New Testament, no one has exercised such a mighty influence upon the world as did Paul? No wonder then that it should have been an enemy of the gospel, a threat to the very life of the church who was to become its greatest champion. And no wonder that this man's conversion should have been as sudden, as dramatic, as thrilling as it was. Indeed, if the whole message of the Bible and the whole experience of salvation that it teaches, together with the evidence of the truth of it all, can be said to be encapsulated and revealed in two events, those events are the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Now, it's certainly possible to think and to say, indeed, many clever men have done so, that while they believe that Paul wrote most or all of the letters attributed to him, no one of any consequence in New Testament scholarship, even the most skeptical of scholars, any longer doubts that Paul wrote at least Romans, the two letters to the Corinthians, Galatians, the two letters to the Thessalonians and Philippians, and most scholars, even among the skeptics, admit that he wrote more than that. I say, while they believe that Paul wrote these letters, the account of his conversion that is found three times in Acts and reflected many times in his letters, an account that Luke would have received from the Apostle Paul himself, I say that account in their minds cannot be true. Indeed, it would seem to me that if you're unwilling to believe the message of the New Testament, you must think and say that Acts chapter 9 is untrue. Something false must lie beneath it. But it has seemed obvious to many more careful readers of the New Testament that there is a natural and unbreakable connection between the Paul of the New Testament epistles and the Paul who met Christ on the Damascus Road. That the former is impossible to explain apart from the latter. That was precisely George Littleton's conclusion when he looked carefully at the evidence, skeptical as he had been. The fact remains that no one can explain Paul or Paul's life or Paul's writings in any way at all convincing apart from the explanation the Apostle Paul himself gave for the sudden revelation or the sudden revolution rather in his life that took place because of his encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. Some have tried. None has succeeded. My message this morning is an exercise in apologetics. It is an argument for the truth, historical, philosophical, and ethical of the Christian faith. We need such arguments all the more today because we are now living in a time and a place of ever more active hostility to our Christian faith. I want you to know that while there may be plenty of reasons why modern Americans no longer embrace the Christian faith, reasons having to do with its ethical demands or its implications for human autonomy and pride, the reasons for their unbelief have nothing whatsoever to do with the adequacy of the evidence for the historical reliability of the New Testament or with some lack of philosophical sophistication or with the inadequacy of its answers to the great 
unavoidable questions posed by human existence itself. Certain facts are so essential to the claims of our faith that to deny them is to deny it all. Paul famously himself acknowledged that in regard to the resurrection. If it didn't happen, as reported in the Gospels, the Christian faith collapses, must collapse, and should collapse. But if that is true, the contrary is likewise true. Accept this as history, as an account of what actually occurred, and you must accept it all. Certainly you can see this. Accept Acts 9 as a record of events as they actually happened in space and time, and the entire Christian faith comes in train. As has been proved throughout the ages, it is far easier to make the case for the New Testament record than to make the case against it, which is why still today, after one philosophical system has come and gone, as will the secular systems of thought that are popular in, in, in our time, all of which will die a natural death soon enough as all such systems before them, still today and day after day, the Bible convinces multitudes of honest minds that it contains the truth, the truth of God, of man, of history, the truth of the future. And among the principal evidences of the Bible's reliability is the Apostle Paul, the furious enemy of all things Christians who became its greatest champion and did so because, as he said repeatedly, he saw Jesus Christ ascended and glorious and heard him speak to him. In that moment, all that he had formerly thought and believed fell into broken pieces at his feet. And though blinded by the light, the truth finally shone brilliantly in his mind. He thought he knew God, only to discover in a moment that he had not known him at all. He must in those first moments have expected the harshest retribution for what he had done and was doing to Christ's followers. And instead, the Lord Jesus met him with love and forgiveness and a new calling. That's how Paul became the missionary and theologian of the grace, mercy, and love of God. Find another explanation for this if you can. Many have tried, but you will not. The risen Christ is the explanation. His plan to save the world is the explanation. His mercy and love, the explanation, and the only explanation. True enough, God must open the mind and the heart. God must draw men to himself. But that he did so, in the case of the Apostle Paul, is an incontrovertible fact of history. And it is a key that unlocks the meaning of life. Amen.